Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. This week, I am joined by costume designer Audrey Fisher, whose previous credits include shows and films such as True Blood, Girl Boss, the film Destroyer, Camping, Barry, the Amazon series, I Know What You Did Last Summer. And now she's out with her latest project, the HBO Max miniseries, Love and Death, which is based on the true story of Texas housewife Candy Montgomery, who was accused of the brutal axe murder of her friend Betty Gore in 1980. Audrey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Max. I'm really happy to be here and to talk about the show. Yeah. Well, I want to start off with your involvement in the show. Um, Can you share how this project came to you, what those initial conversations were like with um, the director, perhaps Leslie Linka Glatter, who I believe you two have a history together working before on True Blood. So I'm sure that gave you a, a bit of confidence when coming on. But yeah, if you could share those initial conversations. Of course. Um, Yes, you are exactly right. So the way that this project came to me is one of those magical ways where I already had this relationship and Leslie and I have been wanting to work together again. And I was in Hawaii finishing up. I know what you did last summer when she reached out and said, I've got a really great project. It's seventies. It's this story. Here's the Texas monthly article. Like, let me know what you think. Are you available? So, you know, when you get that call from Leslie Linka Gladder, you basically say yes. <laughs> so I, I was already excited that she was sort of inviting me in to this project. Um, and then when I read the article, I was, I was totally hooked because I don't know if you've read those two Texas monthly articles, but they're really incredible. And they are basically, that's how the book started, right? They wrote these two articles and they wrote the book. Um, and this story is just so engaging and so shocking and surprising that I was immediately on board. I immediately started doing research before I even knew if there was a meeting or if it was greenlit or anything. So I got the book. I read it like I read it so fast, post-it notes everywhere about, because there's so many great references in the book about, about all of the details, um, clothing, hair, just all the details are there. So I just took obsessive notes on all of that. I did a lot of research in Hawaii at, in my little like rental. And then I finally, I had a meeting and I had a meeting with Leslie, the producer, um, one of our other producers, our first AD Sunday. And it just felt like it was just kind of meant to be. It was a wonderful meeting. They loved my presentation and we sort of were off to the races. That's how it happened. And it, yeah. that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the dream is that you you get asked by someone who already trusts you and knows what you can do and likes your work and they invite you into a project. That's that's so amazing when it happens that way. Um, so I feel lucky that that's how I got to this one, you know, makes it even extra special for me. Yeah. And I'm sure that the reason by, behind that trust is the history of you two working together before can you share, um, d- did that make working on Love and Death a bit more easier, knowing that you were collaborating with a director who you had that history with? Was there a special shorthand between the two of you that 
you couldn't necessarily say for other projects that you worked on? Absolutely. Um, Leslie is incredibly trusting and she really respects once she hires her heads of department and her creative team, you just have this real sense that she's like handing you the ball and saying like, go run down the field, like go for it. Um, She's incredibly communicative. She's accessible. She's respectful of the sort of, you know, the timeline of production. Uh, She always gets back to me right away when I need approval. Um, She always makes time for a meeting, even if you've been shooting for, you know, 14 hours. If I have to have her eyes on something that works the next day, she said, come on over, we'll have a quick meeting. So she's kind of dreamy in terms of collaboration. She makes it incredibly easy. Um, And I think a huge part of that is the way that she, you know, puts so much trust in me. And I feel that makes me feel like doing going above and beyond and beyond and beyond for her. But also it means that, you know, I can just get the job done in a very efficient way. And I think she respects that, you know. Um, Also, Sunday Stevens uh, was our first AD, also a producer. Uh, And Sunday and I also go way back. So sort of working with the two of them, it really feels like working with family. It's like, and now we're even more like family, you know, it's like we're this little production family. So Sunday also would always help me kind of get any information I needed in a very timely fashion, because as you probably know, um, episodic production is a whirlwind. Um, It's an absolute tornado of information and you're shooting and prepping and shooting and prepping and things get moved around all the time. So it really saves me a lot of time and effort if I have such a direct line of communication already set up. It was really great. Yeah. And Leslie, for those listening who don't know, she's someone who just reigns supreme in the space of just modern quality, um, critically acclaimed series, whether it's Mad Men, Homeland, The West Wing, House, Morning Show, of course, True Blood. So um, yeah, being able to work with her, it's such a um, someone whose portfolio of work speaks for itself. Um, I wanted to switch gears and talk about the the show specifically in the setting yeah. within which it's set in, which is 1980 Texas. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if this time period, the specific time period of, you know, the early 80s is one that you had necessarily worked on before. Did that present a challenge in any way in studying the costuming from this, not just from this time frame of the 1980, but also of the community's fashion sensibilities in 1980. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, I just have to say that I was so excited that this was um, a period piece because I've done a string of contemporary um, period design muscle. So when I was reading the book and I understood it was basically from summer 78 till fall 1980, I assistant designed actually my first gig in Hollywood, um, my first gig as an assistant designer in the costume designers guild was on that 70s show. So it felt to me like this sort of like full circle, you know? Oh, I also did. I also assistant designed we are Marshall with my dear friend, Danny Glicker. Mm -hmm. And that show actually inherited or actually purchased a bunch of stock from that 70s show. So I was working with those clothes on that 70s show. And then we had them on We Are Marshall. And I'm pretty sure that I found some pieces and used them in love and death. 
So for me, it's this kind of like full circle back to the 70s. Um, so I was delighted that I got to uh, explore the 70s again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing about the 70s or the late 70s in a small town in Texas or really any small town, it's very different than um, 70s fashion in a major metropolis. Um, you know, small town small town fashion is a, is a hair behind couple years behind sort of fashion in the big cities. So I also, I have to say that even though the murder happened in 1980 and the trial happened in the fall of 1980, the look is still very late seventies. You know, there's some little high points of early eighties, but it's that interesting sort of between time that design wise is very challenging because I think people expect a certain look, you know, when you hear that a show is set in the early 80s or late 70s, you sort of, you have these um, imaginations of what it should look like. But in fact, that that's an interesting bridge between these two very distinctive looks. You know, the mid 70s, the early 70s, the hippie looks, um, like disco looks, um, the sort of prairie, there was sort of that like prairie thing going on, um, a lot of gypsy stuff. So that was all sort of early mid. And then we get into the crazy looks of the 80s, which are so much about shoulder and color blocking and bright, vivid colors. So the middle, the bridge is very, was very fun for me to explore. Um, and in a small town, I had to sort of turn it down a notch and sort of back it up a little bit. And also this is a very kind of, you know, it's a Methodist community where we're sort of, we, we've landed in this very sort of traditional um, family values, you know, church, kids, home um, kind of environment. So everything is a little more modest. It's not, it, it's everything's just a, a little more buttoned up. You know, the church look is sort of like Sunday best um, was sort of the leading edge for the fashion uh, in, in this community that we find ourselves. So I found it kind of, I really, I enjoy it when there are certain design kind of restrictions or I don't want to say restrictions, sort of, sort of when I have, have to have certain blinders on, you know, like when you're doing contemporary, you literally can walk into any shop in any mall and find something. But when you're doing period, it's sort of like you have to hone in and you really have to work within certain boundaries. I find that sort of freeing because it frees up all that creativity instead of having to scan for everything always. You just are like, okay, this is yeah. it. This is where I have to look. Um, so yeah, I, I loved being sort of in 78, 79, early 80. I did so much research. I got really into the research. Um, I had a good amount of time to research before everything started to pop off, you know, before I had to do fittings and, and start pulling and do fittings. Um, I would say the most amazing research for me is, uh, well, it's, it's always, it's so many things that come all together, but I relied heavily on Sears catalogs, Montgomery Ward catalogs. I now have like a whole library of all the catalogs from like 75 to like 81. And I, I have to figure out storage for those. Yeah. Um, I also got all the popular magazines, you know, from like Newsweek and Time to um, uh, Mademoiselle, Cosmo, then Women's World, 
um, you know, all the all the women's magazines, people. Um, so I was trying to sort of imagine what Candy would have been looking at, you know, what everyone was kind of looking at and dreaming of. Because of course, Candy has this real sense of like romance and she wants she wants fireworks and she kind of wants more all the time. And I feel like she's the one who's sort of looking through Cosmo and sort of wondering and thinking and dreaming, um, thinking about that affair. She's looking at people, you know, she's, she's seen outfits that she wants to emulate. She's, you know, seen looks that are aspirational for her. Um, yeah. And all kinds of street photography. Like I love finding photographers who just have taken, you know, pictures on the streets of little towns uh, in Texas at that time. Um, that's incredibly useful. Also school portraits or like um, uh, also I used a lot of yearbooks. Just finding like pictures of real people is is just amazing. And just I also some of the people who were doing research with me on my team, they brought in like family photos. I used some of my family photos. <laughs> And those are also like gold because you really see, you know, Montgomery Ward will show you the silhouette and the and the kind of the colors and the and the patterns, but then it's the family photos that really show you how it's being worn. Um, and also, I think last but not least, I have to mention church directories. So I'm not so sure they're so popular now, but in the sort of late 70s and early 80s, there were these church directories that were sort of like an early Facebook for these church communities so that all the church families would come and do portraits. And so, and then it was in this little directory and there are these beautiful color portraits and everyone's in their Sunday best. And that just, I mean, to me, that was like almost that I referenced them constantly just to like really get the lock on the Sunday best. Um, those those things are extraordinary. I still yeah. take them out and look at them because they just it's really the spirit is so fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so fun to see real people wearing these clothes. I mean, anyway, so I, I really the church directory was a winner. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it could be helpful for the next project. Who knows when, when you keep it around. Um, yeah. So um, you, you spoke a lot with, you know, the catalogs about researching the fashion styles from this period specifically, but I wanted to know um, any research you were able to dig into the, the story specifically. Um, and I guess if you were consulted by people who were actually part of this story at the mm -hmm. time, maybe members of the community, family members, lawyers during the trial, yeah. um, did any collaborations with those people who were actually there in 1980 in Wiley, Texas, provide any help in your costuming? Yes. Yeah. A big yes. Um, of course, right. I didn't, I got so excited talking about the catalogs. Um, I forgot to mention that uh, I did obsessively track down any photographs that I could find um, of Candy, of Betty, of their family life. Um, of course, I did, I could get a lot of images of the arrest, you know, things that were newsworthy that were sort of um, cataloged by local like small news outlets I, I was able to find footage kind of obscure footage and then take screenshots and those became very very helpful so i did that with the the arrest the day of the arrest the day that she was the next day where she was um, released on bail uh, and then all of the trial days there's a lot of imagery from the trial days a lot of video 
Um, the video is fantastic. And then I just took a million screenshots. So valuable also for the crowds. There was a lot of imagery of um, the people kind of crammed in to watch and in line to watch and the crowd outside of the courthouse. That was also so useful to really see like, you know, real fashion or real clothing on real people in that moment. Um, so, you know, doing a internet, doing research on the internet, I found a lot of like family photos that have been kind of uploaded to the internet because this has been, this story has been sort of um, of interest for a long time, excuse me. <clears throat> so there are a lot of great snapshots to be found. So I basically tried to get as many of them as I could sort of into like a real photos, real candy, real Betty, real everyone sort of folder. I've actually noticed um, since the show has come out um, and I'm sort of like glancing at the internet and seeing how it's doing and all that, I've noticed some new photos that I've never seen. And I'm like, God, where were those? <laughs> um, but I feel like I had a pretty good trove of personal photos from the families and then all of the stuff from the, from the arrest and, and from the trial. And uh, they were incredibly useful, um, especially from the trial and the arrest. I really, we did try to uh, recreate those looks as much as possible. Um, and that was, that's always kind of a delicious challenge when you're trying to sort of recreate something. Um, we weren't doing a documentary, so, you know, I didn't have to be exactly perfect, you know, that that would make it sort of another level of complicated but and challenging. But my challenge was basically to work with the candy that that Elizabeth was portraying and then work with the real life imagery and sort of find a beautiful um, kind of unification and and dress that character. So I feel like I feel good about the ways that we were able to recreate and tweak. Um, there are a couple looks that are kind of startling how close they are. And there's one incredible Easter egg. Um, there's a coat that Candy wears during the trial. It was unseasonably cold in the fall of 80. Um, and there's a couple of days where she wears this kind of heavy wool overcoat. It's kind of an oatmeal beige and it has horizontal stripes and hood and wood toggle buttons. And we were trying to find something similar. We were searching for the actual coat. We couldn't find it. We were going all over to all of our, you know, sending pictures to all the rental houses all over. Um, we were shopping online. We were sending images to all our vintage vendors. Couldn't find it. Found a bunch of things that were similar. It's called a duffel coat. Um, we found it like in the catalogs. Anyway, my assistant designer, Brie Harris, who's amazing, and we've worked together quite a lot. So we have a really wonderful vocabulary and, and shorthand. Um, without me really knowing, she went on this kind of like deep, insane dive. So she was looking for this coat everywhere online. Like at night, she would get home and just kind of do it for an hour and like wake up and do it for another hour. And anyway, she found the coat. Oh, wow. She found an actual dead stock of this coat. So that to me is like, and that was sort of like a wonderful gift for the end of the show. Um, and you, you'll you see it like there's a side by side in the final in the final episode. Um, they do a couple of side by sides and they show the the real some real photographs. And that coat is the same coat and it fit. It fit Lizzie perfectly. 
it was like pristine. It still had tags on it. It was like this weird universal, like a gift from the universe. So that was, that was nice. That's fun to see that every time I see it. Um, as far as getting um, support um, and for like from consultants, we did have Robert Udishin, who is and was uh, Candy's lawyer. Um, so he was there. He is portrayed by Adam in the uh, in the show, and he is Adam Cropper. He's the sweetest, kindest. He was brought on by HBO to consult, and early on, I started kind of communicating with him because I knew that he would give me all of these little golden nuggets of information. And actually he was the one who signed off on the, the illustrations of the outfits that the two women wore on that fateful day. Um, there were a lot of sort of police report descriptions and, and other little factoids about those two outfits. Um, so I was able, I did some illustrations uh, showed them to Robert before I showed them to David E. Kelly and the whole team and Leslie and he he basically he signed off. He said, "Yeah, that's that looks good. That's basically what they were wearing." And then we were able to show it to the team, and they were like, "Great! If Robert says this is it, let's go for it." And then I had to like, you know, work on building all the multiples and everything that I needed for stunt women and for the body double and everything. So that was cool to be able to have his voice sort of bless those outfits. I mean, I haven't ever had that experience of working with someone who was actually there. Um, he was kind of, I, I sort of had, I was sort of like, I kind of fangirled around him, I think, because I was so, it was so weird to think of him knowing Candy and then being on set and seeing Elizabeth as Candy. I mean, I just can't imagine. So yeah. I tried to ask him as much as I could and he was very, very helpful. Yeah, I would think, you know, being in his shoes, uh, there on set, it must have been such a out of body experience, you know, 40, <clears throat> 40 years later, seeming like you're in the same place you were back in 1980. Yeah. Um, and constantly going to him for assurance that your work <clears throat> looked authentic to the time that he was firsthand living in must have given you the confidence moving forward. Um, yeah. So that's really cool. So you had Robert, I guess, for the trial and for the, um, the actual murder scene costuming, yeah. but um, pre um, the the events that happened, can you mm -hmm. talk about the personal photographs that you were able to uncover? That isn't necessarily the most publicly available compared to the the um, trial portion of of the story. Can you talk about um, perhaps any difficulties you had in trying to dig into? photos or videos of Candy that aren't necessarily as easy as just, you know, Googling her name. Right. You know, I, I, I had help researching, you know, and um, from my team and we all, we all basically just kept burrowing and burrowing and burrowing. And we just kept kind of following the trail. So I think some of the images we found were probably, you know, not as usual, like you couldn't find them as easily because we were just working so hard and I mean, all of them were useful to me, even the ones that you, if you Google the story right now, come up, you know, or that were in the Texas Monthly article. Um, but, it, you know, the real women are so different from our actors. So it just kind of, the, all those images and all of the clothes that were being worn in those images, they just helped give me like a flavor and a kind of understanding. And I feel like stylistically, 
I was trying to recreate what I saw in those in those photographs uh, in their real lives. So, you know, Candy had a kind of a more um, she had a more streamlined look. She seemed a little bolder, um, a little more confident in her clothes. It, that's just the sense that I got from the photos. And and Betty was wearing things that were more decorative, a little more traditional, um, a little softer, more like school teacher vibes. So, and that's really what we, you know, really leaned into in the show, it turns out, you know. So those it, it's nice that those little hints kind of were so clear to me. And that that's where um, Elizabeth um, went with the character. And that's where Lily went with the character. It just, it all kind of, it all worked so well. Yeah. I want to touch on the duality of Candy's identity, which is clearly demonstrated through through your costumes. Um, because on trial, probably through the <laughs> advisement of Robert and her defense, um, she wanted they wanted her to be presented as this very docile, unassuming, church-going housewife, which they thought would help, um, you know, with the outcome of this, uh, you know, with the verdict. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, I believe she was really this fun, flirty, you know, person coming up in, in Texas. That's what she was known for from her friends, from her yeah. the people in the community, that she wasn't this, you know, very um, conservative minded person. Can you share how you came to that realization through your work of this double life that she was leading both one for the public during the trial, but then also in her personal life and um, what you realized her reasoning was behind this masking? Yeah. Um, well, in the book, um, Evidence of Love, uh, the authors are pretty clear that um, Candy, you know, she came to it's, it's sort of in her relationship to being a Methodist um, that gave me a lot of information because basically she came to the church as more of like a social environment. Um, she wasn't raised as a Methodist. She basically joined the church when they joined that community and it becomes sort of the central hub of all their activities. Um, <clears throat> you know, in the story, in our story, I just want to cough one more time. Go for it. <clears throat> Hmm. In our story, there is so much activity around the church. You know, there Sunday is so important. Going to mass. There's the picnic after the mass. There's there's all kinds of activities with the children. Um, you know, they have this sort of like structured playtime and story reading. You know, the men are nowhere. The men are nowhere to be seen. The men are going to work every day. You know, putting on the suits and going to work, and the women sort of run the home and do all these church activities. So. But it really, it really made an impression on me when I was reading the book that, you know, Candy had a pretty, she was kind of like a, you know, a fun, flirtatious, sort of spicy person in this environment. Um, she wasn't raised as a Methodist. She had had a lot of boyfriends. Um, she was sort of like the belle of the ball in this environment, in this small town environment. And I think sort of her history of, of, you know, kind of being like the cute, sassy gal sort of makes her the sort of head cheerleader of this little community. Meanwhile, Betty was really raised in Kansas in a very traditional home, um, I think is a true believer. And that really guides sort of her, her persona and how she deals with the world. 
So I think right there, you're setting up this sort of duality of these two sides, these two different kinds of women who have different kind of core values and, and core beliefs. Um, so you already set up this set of exciting difference. Um, yeah. And that's what I, that's what I leaned into. I felt like that that's how I approached their, their costumes as well. You know, candy, I could really sort of edge a little bit into sort of more sort of sporty fashion or contemporary fashion. You know, she's often in a kind of a cute fitted t-shirt with her jeans at home and her flip-flops. Um, there's, I just kind of made her more body conscious and sort of more interested in the contemporary fashion she was seeing, like in her People magazine, for instance. Um, whereas Betty is, you know, all of her outfits are a little more buttoned up, little bows, you know, little patterns, ditzy florals. She's also pregnant, you know, like we have to take her through a pregnancy and and sort of her pregnancy fashion is also very sort of demure. Um, yeah, so it was it was a lot of fun to sort of create these two these these two very different looks for these very different characters. And then when we get to the trial, uh, it was also in the book that basically uh, her lawyer, um, Don, he wanted her to basically tone it down. And I sort of tried to really lean into that in the scene right before, um, right before basically she starts trial. She goes to his office She's wearing this really cute T-shirt, a fitted T-shirt. It's black with a quite interesting design and her burgundy jeans, which she wore a lot. So it's kind of like cute and body conscious and sort of a little bit flirty and a little bit fun. And he basically in that conversation tells her she needs to tone it down and that if she dresses like she always dresses, she'll be convicted for murder. So, you know, he understands the power of clothing and tells her to lose weight so that she appears much smaller than Betty. He asks her, he says she should cut her hair to make it a little more kind of demure. Um, and that she has to wear clothing that sort of, you know, hides her, kind of makes her look like, as you said, the sort of vulnerable, modest housewife who could never possibly do anything like this horrible crime. So when she starts the when she starts the trial that first day, she's wearing this blue dress, with a little tie and this cream uh, knit sweater. Um, and that's exactly what Real Candy was wearing that first trial day. It's a pretty good match. Um, we had to build all of it custom, um, but that's a really different look. You know, that dress, the sort of the length of it, the color of it, this fit, it's a little, it's definitely a different candy that we see that, that, that first morning of the trial with that sort of, you know, big sweater um, kind of covers her up a lot. So, yeah, I mean, clearly uh, Dawn really knew the power of costume. And in reality, she did try to create this new character so that people would, would you know, not be able to perceive that she could possibly have done this crime. And it worked. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So you it's know, so shocking that she wasn't convicted. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you could say that it was essentially the costumes which had the effect yeah. that it did on, on the verdict. Um, so yeah. the 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 factor it played, I think, is quite significant. It's something that's under yeah. appreciated for sure. Um, yeah. As you well, said, the masking. It's yeah. like, yeah, she was putting on this. It's like a costume inside of a costume. Like it was a masking of the, of the reality. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, for my last question before I let you go, Audrey, is uh -huh. um, is there any projects that are there any projects that you're working on now about to work on that we have to look forward to or anything coming out later this year, perhaps? Um, I've been waiting so excitedly for this show to finally come out. Um, but, you know, we're now in the strike. Yes. So, uh, you know, who knows when this will air, but hopefully when you air it, maybe the strike will be over. <laughs> But currently, at this moment in time, we're in a strike. So actually, right now, I'm sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. I have my um, I have my hopes about a couple of projects that have not been greenlit yet. But I would love to work with Leslie again. I would love to work with that team again. And so I'm sort of trying to put myself uh, in line for another Leslie project. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it pans out. But um, yeah, nothing is like on deck because the strike is happening. Right. So we'll, we'll see. I would love to tell you like, oh yes, I've got this amazing <laughs> project coming up, but I'm something will, something amazing will happen and hopefully right after the strike. Right. And in the meantime, we have the last two episodes of Love and Death to look forward to um, right. later this month. Um, well, yeah, congratulations again. It's already such a success on the HBO Max uh, streaming platform. And um, we'll see what what you'll do next, hopefully with Leslie, which I'm sure will be just right. as much of a success. Yes. Um, Can't but wait. <laughs> Audrey, thanks so much for taking your time to chat with me. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Max. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.